0: Are Locked On NBA, your daily NBA podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.
1: Lamarcus well, is, is not with the team. Uh, we've mutually agreed uh, to work on some opportunities for him, and that'll be elsewhere. <laughs>
0: Today's episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra. Are you happy because you win, or do you win because you're happy? At only 2.6 carbs and 95 calories, it's only worth it if you enjoy it. Stay tuned for the Ultra Player of the Week coming up later in the episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Locked On NBA. I am your guest host, Matt Moore. From the Action Network, you can find me on Twitter at HB basketball, Filling in for David Locke today. Very excited to be along with you. Make sure to check out all of the great shows on the, on the Locked On Network including Locked On Today, Locked On Bets. We have so many great shows across the network. Make sure to check them all out. Rate, review, and subscribe. Today's show, I'm joined by Ben Goliver, the NBA writer for The Washington Post, my former colleague at CBS Sports, and the author of Bubble Ball, Inside the NBA's Fight to Save a Season. New book about the bubble from last season. Out. On May 4th, you can pre-order it wherever you get your books. Ben's great. Ben's always a guest on Thursdays. I'm the guest here. We talk about a number of great things today, including we talk about LaMarcus Aldridge in the news that he'll probably soon be traded, the return of fans to the NBA arenas, and are there too many three-pointers? All that and more on Locked on NBA. Let's get started. All right, Ben, the NBA is back. It has returned from the All-Star break. The players have returned from... Well, Miami, apparently, according to Brian Windhorst, that's where everyone went was Miami, you know, because that's decisions that people make. Um, the big news, I think, today on Wednesday, it, before the Spurs-Mavericks game, Mavericks beat the Spurs, Greg Popovich, in what I will have never remembered any, Greg Popovich even discussing trades at any point, Greg Popovich publicly states that, They are working on a trade for Lamarcus Aldridge. He will not be returning to the team. They are looking at that. I had reported on Action Network that there was some burblings that, like, hey, Aldridge might get bought out. Uh, The people I talked to were like, doesn't seem likely. They always say that they're going to make a trade. They never make a trade. But this time, it seems like they actually this is going to happen. There's no coming back from this now. What was your reaction when you heard the news on Aldridge?
1: Yeah, I mean, was it just sort of saying like, hey, we're having a garage sale. If anybody's interested, make us your best offer. I mean, that's kind of what it felt like. I mean, it seemed like it was a mutual decision to kind of part ways. Look, his role wasn't that huge this year. Their style has kind of gone away from him. And I think that he's at the end of the super productive portion of his career. At least he was, you know, probably a year or two ago as well. And it's just kind of been declined ever since. It's fascinating because I I feel like he and Blake Griffin got compared a lot, especially earlier in their careers as they were on the way up. And then when they were both peaking and then now it's amazing, they're kind of living in tandem, you know, Blake goes to the Brooklyn Nets, Uh, you know, potentially Aldridge could get traded or bought out, find himself on a contending type team kind of within a few weeks of each other. It's just amazing how sometimes guys get linked like that. I just remember Matt, like way back in the day, the Blazers edge debates, would you rather have Aldridge or Griffin? One's a highlight player. One's more fundamental, you know, uh, Blake's all offense and LaMarcus is more balanced two way player. I mean, those kinds of debates would just go on for years and years and years. And it's just weird how they've kind of been linked together at this stage of their career as well.
0: Yeah, the symmetry. I'm I'm having a hard time with all of the what were new players when I started riding that are all now reaching the twilight of their career. Um, with Aldridge, I think it's it's interesting. He's in an interesting spot. I think the offers for him are going to be pretty sparse unless the Spurs add on something like you know. Look, if you if you if you use Aldridge as the cash part of a of a bigger deal and you were to add on one of the younger players, cause they do have like a lot of really good young players and they're all pretty much on the wing. Like you have DeJounte Murray and you have Derek White and you have Keldon Johnson and you have Devin Vassell and like all these guys, Vassell and like all these guys are, are there. So you could probably put something bigger together, but the, it's just so unspurs. Like I've been focused on this for two years now that I, I went through the spurs and we're just like doing some research on San Antonio. I was like, huh, that's weird the Spurs are way worse with Aldridge on the floor in terms of net rating. That's odd. And then I was like, okay, well, that's gotta be somebody else. Like that's just somebody else's fault. Clearly it's not Aldridge cause he's playing great. He was an all-star or was in all-star discussions I think last year. Um, and then I started looking at it and it was like, no, no, no. Uh, DeMar DeRozan is better with Aldridge off the court and DeJounte Murray's better. And this is this year. DeJounte Murray's better with him off the court and Rudy Gay is better with him off the court. As every single player was better, especially on the defensive end with Aldridge off the court. That's really the problem is that for whatever reason, instead of talking about in terms of LaMarcus Aldridge is good or bad. I've tried to put it in context of this is not working like the combination of him and DeRozan has always struggled offensively because of the space that they occupy defensively though i do think aldridge has kind of taken a big step backwards and that i think is going to be one of the challenges for finding a suitor for him is is finding teams where he could be protected by the scheme and, and there's just not a lot of those places where that can be the case and that has the money to send out in return for him which is 19 million
1: Well, for sure. I mean, look, how many guys his age are really awesome defenders in this kind of era where everybody's a shooter, right? Where you have to cover all this ground, where you have to get out, where you have to move and recover and all that stuff. There just aren't very many bigs who are 35 years old who are you know, elite defensive players or even plus defensive players. And so I do think he kind of grew up before our eyes a little bit. I think he got down in San Antonio right the smack of his prime. And, you know, it's kind of quiet down there. Maybe they get less attention than other spots. And then, you know, you fast forward five, six years, whatever it's been. And we're all like, wow, wait a minute. La- LaMarcus is in his mid-30s? Like, what happened there? It-, it was also interesting to me, like, you go back to the bubble last year, for example. How much more exciting, refreshing, smooth. I mean, all these positive words they looked without him there. You know, and it, it seemed like, oh, that-, that could really harm them. Uh, when they announced before the bubble that he wasn't going to be uh, you know, playing down there at Disney World, they didn't skip a beat. They actually looked much more like their more natural self. Everybody found and stepped up into really nice roles. And so, you know, to me, the writing was on the wall here. And I'm just kind of curious from your perspective, if you're a contender, are you interested in Aldridge if you can trade for him? You know, maybe say like, let's say uh, you've got a trade exception so you can just take his salary for the balance of the year. Are you willing to do that? Or, I mean, do you just kind of sit around and hope that he gets bought out and and they just reach some sort of an agreement? Because it is a big number, like you're describing, not gigantic. uh, But certainly, I I don't think he's bringing that kind of value to a team at this stage, uh, even though there's only a few months left on that contract.
0: It's wild to me that when I think about it, obviously, the big candidate, we talk about a trade exception is Boston, right? Like, what's a better outcome for Boston, Nikola Vucevic or LaMarcus Aldridge? And, like, the answer is, like, pretty clearly, and we'll know Vucevic, like Vucevic is much is a much better option for them. Even honestly, because of, of what like Vucevic was coached by Frank Vogel and then Steve Clifford. And in that time, like, he's not a good, a a plus defender, but he's a fine defender. And you can build a scheme that can limit his problems and be okay with him. Um, I think Vucevic in Boston would be great versus like Aldridge. uh, Does that move the needle? Like, does that really change anything? And it seems clunky with Tatum and Brown and, you know, they're very they're very perimeter three oriented and that kind of messes it up. Like it's complicated to find. You know, if there was a buyout, I think there's a lot of places. Like, you know, if Andre Drummond gets bought out and chooses the Nets, then Aldridge, if he's bought out, can just be like, okay, I'm going to go win a title with the Lakers. You know, come in as the third center, fill in some minutes, play power forward next to Harrell, maybe in bigger lineups, uh, play next to AD in some lineups. and And that's totally fine. Likewise, I think probably... Um, I don't know if he's what Brooklyn's looking for because they they also are so perimeter oriented. But, you know, if, if they miss out on Drummond, do they add Aldridge as well? Because there's a lot of talk that, that Brooklyn's going to be in, in pursuit also. I think maybe more likely for a trade, you've got to look at like either a three-way deal or a team that's basically looking to collect assets in exchange for, you know, X, Y, Z. But the Spurs are working with Aldridge and LaMarcus Aldridge is not going to be like, yeah, I want to go to Charlotte. Like that's not a thing, right? Like that's not a thing that he's gonna be. Oh, it's gotta forward.
1: be it's gotta be ring chase mode for right. sure. I actually kind of like the idea. Of what if they just like form this, you know, the super team of guys who just need a home? What if they don't choose Drummond or Aldrich? What if it's just both? What if it's the friends of Kevin scenario, right? Where Katie just calls up his longhorns buddy and is like, Hey Lamarcus, what's going on, man? You wanna right. hop aboard for a ring chase and just load up this front court that everybody was mocking two months ago? um i think that would make them even more the most hated team in the league if they aren't already and i think it would be pretty funny i mean would it work let let me ask you that if they brought in griffin drummond and aldridge and it was just like we're this is our new look front court we had to clear out jared allen this is who we are now you know we know you're all going to make these like goofy like clutch point graphics making fun of our, our group but hey we don't care we're going for it all these guys haven't won a title previously at least the new ones you know whether it's Harden, drummond and and Aldridge. I mean, that could be a pretty wild, like, I mean, it's not exactly the A team, but you know, maybe it's the C plus team.
0: Well, love it's like, if you can get, you know, how many minutes, how many good minutes do you need out of Aldridge? Like, can you get 10 good minutes for Aldridge off the bench? Yeah, I think so. Like, I think you can get 15 good minutes for Aldridge. They can get 20 good minutes for Aldridge. It provides you kind of reinforcement in case you need to, uh, to fill in minutes in case of injury. Now, they have the ability to go small now, right? With Jeff Green and Blake Griffin, they can go small for 48 minutes if they have to. A lot of it for the Nets is just like their formula is what I like about Brooklyn is they're not subtle. There's nothing subtle about Brooklyn. They're just basically like, Yeah, we have Kyrie Irving and James Harden and Kevin Durant. Yeah, we're gonna ISO a lot. Yeah, we're just gonna score a ton because we have these three guys. And then we're going to figure it out from there. Like the, the obviousness of the nets, I actually kind of find endearing to a certain degree. And like adding those guys, I do think is kind of interesting from the perspective of like, you could do a lot of different things with those three guys. Like with Aldridge, you're playing a lot bigger and like, you're obviously playing in the post more, which I guess that takes away from Kyrie Irving's post touches, but that's either here, nor there. Um, you know, with Blake, you're doing a lot more of short role and with him as more of the small ball five and, with Drummond, you're just running pick and roll over and over and over again to try and just put pressure at the rim. Um, the question is going to be like, well, if Aldridge is a subdefender and Drummond is a subdefender and Blake is a sub defender, but I'm really big on this. And, and before we get a break, I did want to get your ideas on this. And we, we should talk about Aldridge's kind of like legacy too, but I'm right now in the mode of, you know, defense wins championships. I think that's still true, but it's no longer like how good is your defense? It's, can you find defensive solutions in a playoff series? And yeah,
1: do you have enough different ways you can go, basically? Right. Can you match up with everybody who's going to come into your path?
0: Right, and, and that's kind of the question is, like, if you have the ability to go small with Blake and Jeff Green, and if you have the ability to go big, like, if they were the face of the Lakers, if, if they did what we're talking about here, and they just tacked on all these ring chasers, and they went up against the Lakers with AD versus Gasol, you know, AD and Gasol, or AD and Harrell, or whoever, they would have Lamarcus Aldridge and Blake Griffin and Andre Drummond to throw at all those guys. They would be able to battle the Lakers' size. It's kind of interesting in terms of the versatility that they would have. I mean, would you like to have Aldridge around just to foul and beat a little bit too, like in a potential Eastern Conference Finals?
1: I mean, I feel like he might give them a little bit of length and size there. It's not an ideal solution. Um, I mean, I do feel like that's probably the one matchup in the Eastern Conference that they're a little bit nervous about. I don't think Aldridge is really doing much for you against Giannis. Um, you know, I, I think his defensive numbers just kind of haven't been there, um, the last couple of years. So, uh, yeah, I think it's it, they're probably looking for matchup versatility, uh, you know, looking for ahead to the playoffs, and he could potentially help there. You were talking about legacy and all that with Lamarcus. I mean, I just remember, you know, being in, uh, you know, Portland covering the, the Blazers for Blazers Edge when he left for San Antonio, it felt like, you know, the dynasty for the Spurs could live on, right? He was going to take the mantle from Tim Duncan, at least that was the kind of. Discussion. He was going to grow old with Kawhi Leonard, and then pretty quickly it it became clear that wasn't going to be how the story was going to go. Kawhi had his own ideas. He gets out of town. I think Aldridge never played great in the playoffs for San Antonio, and like the one year against uh, you know Golden State, you know, his numbers were pretty pedestrian. He didn't really, you know, nobody was going to look fantastic against those Warriors teams, but he certainly didn't. I wonder when you're looking back at a San Antonio tenure. And that was a pretty big free agency move for them. They got a lot of attention and credit for that because they had never been this major destination. And of course the Texas, uh, Texas homecoming played into it. Like what grade would you give Aldridge or the Spurs era Aldridge, you know, for that time period, I feel like, you know, looking back on it, it's kind of a disappointment, right? I mean, I I wouldn't give it like a D, but you know, I, I think they made the Western conference finals once, Um, you know, they, they really didn't make that competitive series. Aldridge probably never got, you know, fully peaking like maybe people thought or hoped that he would. And then you look at Portland, they rebounded brilliantly uh, in, in the next couple of years without Aldridge. And they made a Western Conference Finals as well. So, I mean, I, I think a lot of the hand wringing that went on with his decision to leave the Blazers for the Spurs wound up being kind of a moot point. And, uh, you know, a lot of his career, I think, was spent getting overlooked, even though he made that big uh, mid-career move.
0: You know, it's funny. He's like the only superstar to, to choose San Antonio. And yet, and they're really the only one that they ever chased. And yeah, I feel like both sides would have been better off having not done that deal. And it's not necessarily that he was bad for San Antonio. Like you said, like he had some good years. He made the all-star team, uh, was still putting up numbers. I think a lot of it is, it's not necessarily LaMarcus's fault. No, not, even not necessarily. It is clearly not LaMarcus's fault, but look at the series of events that happened after he signs with the Spurs in 2015. 2016 they lose to the thunder that closes the tim duncan era like their inability to get out of of the okc series tim duncan retires afterwards uh the following season in 2016 or in 2017 rather they do make the western conference finals but Kawhi gets hurt that kickstarts the Kawhi entire thing there was a lot of tension internally with the with the spurs that was reported on in terms of like LaMarcus wanted to play more in the post and they were trying to space him out. And finally Popovich went the other way and was like, okay, we're just going to like, you just, you do you and like recommitted to him. And then the Spurs like stopped winning 50 games specifically when Aldridge became the best player uh, on top of the quiet trade, which obviously (laughs) was the biggest thing. Like none of these are things are, are, are Aldridge's fault. It's just like, this is what happened. Meanwhile, the Blazers have made the playoffs every year. Dame has, has erupted. And if Aldridge had stayed and it had kind of been like, okay, it's cool. If, if Dame becomes the guy, then he's like this beloved underrated superstar still in Portland. Like, it's interesting to see how it would have been different had he never made that move.
1: Oh, for sure. I also feel like, uh, you know, he's one of these guys where people are going to look back on his basketball reference and be like, why did he not shoot more three-pointers? Like, why was he so resistant to it? if he had come along five years later, would he have been way better and like a no brainer hall of famer? And was it just a, a matter of him coming along just a little bit too early and just being a little bit too resistant to the evolution of the sport, right? Because he really didn't get into the threes in the last couple of years. And he had such a pure shot all the way through and he was so comfortable hitting it at 18 feet. And just for whatever reason, he had that, uh, that mental block. And I, I really do think it held him back and held his teams back at various points. And, um you know it just kind of kept him in that very good but not great category and ultimately that wasn't quite good enough so I don't know if he has any regrets along those lines you know he did experiment it, like with like you said at, at various points later in his career but um I do feel like he's one of those guys I look at just the, the full body of his work and it's it's sort of like a Chris Bosch thing now with Bosch it was the injuries right and uh obviously the the very scary health thing towards the end of his career but with Aldridge it's like this guy should have been better, in my opinion. Like, he should have had a much bigger, more impactful career than he did. And if he goes and tacks on a ring here at the end and, and hops on the right team and they happen to win it, um, you know, that, that's going to be great for him. You know, kind of you tip your hat. But it's not exactly how I thought things would go. When I remember seeing him when he was 25 years old and just looking so dominant with such a pure shot and the, the right combination of physicality down low and the post moves and everything else, the length on defense and the versatility it just never quite came together. It was kind of a tease the whole way through.
0: Let's take a break and when we come back. We're going to talk about the impact as fans start to return to NBA arenas as we we'll get closer and closer to that when we continue on Locked on NBA. You know, for me, the highlight of All-Star Weekend was a three-point contest. It's always a lot of fun for me to bet on. It's also just a lot of fun to watch. I think it's a marquee event. For the NBA now at the All-Star Weekend. And man, did Steph Curry put on a show. 31 in that first round. Just an incredible performance. Winning his second three-point contest. It's kind of shocking he hasn't won it more. But that was his second. He's also had two second-place finishes. And just seeing Curry being able to shoot like that again. Seeing Curry on that kind of stage was really incredible. And he really embodies the joy, the happiness, the enjoyment of the game. And that's what Micheloba Ultra really tries to convey as well. You know, of Ultra, they say that it's only worth it if you enjoy it. It's only 2.6 carbs and 95 calories. They believe that joy creates success. Enjoyment isn't the end game, it's the whole game. And no player embodies that better than Steph Curry. That's why he's your Ultra Player of the Week. Betting on the NBA doesn't have to be a guessing game if you listen to the new Locked On Bets podcast hosted by your boy Q and handicapping expert Lee Sterling. Get daily picks, blowout specials, wrong team favorite picks, and Lee Sterling's lock of the day. Follow the Locked On Bets podcast brought to you by betonline.ag, wherever you get podcasts. Back here on Locked On NBA, Ben Gulliver alongside me, Matt Moore, filling in for David Locke. Ben? Have yeah, fans again, which is going to be a trip. As weird as it is to not have fans, it's going to be weird to have fans back in arenas as well. Uh, the NBA actually has a post up that talks about, you know, arena by arena, where these different arenas are. Uh, on March 9th, the Hawks announced that they're going to start selling single game tickets. They're going to be at a limited capacity, ten percent to start with. The Celtics uh, are going to start on March twenty second. They're going to be at twelve percent capacity. These arenas are all going to be below 25%. Uh, the Mavericks, I think, are going to be one of the ones that are probably going to be a little bit more aggressive because of Texas obviously opening its doors. The Nuggets uh, are still not allowing fans in. The Warriors haven't announced yet. But most of, these, most of the teams have announced some plan to allow limited fans in. You know, I, I saw a stat that one in four Americans have received at least the first dose of the vaccine and things are ramping up very, very quickly. I'm not going to ask you to, to, you know, put a, a sense of when this is going to happen, because those are big, big questions that involve a lot of logistics, but what do I think are, are your immediate thoughts on the return of fans in this limited capacity. And is there going to be an adjustment period? Do you think when we start to actually get like half full arenas and three full arenas and what do you think that impacts going to be?
1: I definitely think it's going to be taking you know in phases, and I think it's going to be a while until we get back to the the full fan experience like we've come to uh, to expect. When you do see the the buildings that currently allow fans over the first you know a month or so of the um, of the season, they really didn't seem like they made much impact, right? Like you show them on the jumbotron, you see them during the commercial breaks, but in terms of like impacting gameplay you know, outside of maybe one or two markets where teams were like doing really well at home and they had a decent number of fans like Utah comes to mind. Um, you, you can't really say, oh yeah, well, is this even impacting the games? Most of the games look fairly empty. So it's definitely something that we're going to want to track. Like for example, uh, you know, what does a uh, home win loss percentage look like before the all-star break versus after the all-star break? Can we see any meaningful difference? I think that's a pretty interesting question. Um, I guess I would ask you, Matt, like if you had the vaccine shots, let's say both shots, you, you got one that, that did ask you to take two shots over the course of a month and you did it. Would you feel comfortable enough to buy tickets? Would that be a, a different, like a kind of an inflection point? Because I do feel like when I'm just hearing anecdotally from people who have either gotten their shots or they're starting to get it, there's like this big feeling of relief, right? I think that's what most people describe. It's this idea of like, okay, um, The absolute worst things, you know, in terms of death or like, you know, months long illness are probably no longer going to be an impact. And then it's probably some sort of a a rationalization process of like, okay, well, what am I comfortable doing? And I guess put yourself in that spot. If you had both shots, would you be comfortable paying money to go watch a game? Or would that be kind of a phased process? Because I think part of the reason why the NBA teams are going to want to at least keep their doors open is because not everyone's going to come rushing back immediately. Right. And so you, you kind of want to meet people where they are. And I think that's part of what they're thinking is, but for you personally, if you had both shots and you were ready to rock, would you pay money to go watch an NBA game right now?
0: I think so. I think on some level it, it becomes, you know, if I get the shot, then I know like, because of my specific condition, like I'm not, I don't have pre existing medical conditions. Um, I'm not a frontline worker. I'm not a teacher. Uh, I'm shout out to all the teachers out there. They're, a lot of them are getting the vaccine. I'm very happy about that. Um, I'm not, you know, federal worker or any of these things. Like I'm back of the line and I'm okay with that. Like, that's totally cool with me. So for me, it's like, if I, if I get the vaccine, then I have a, a reasonable belief that anyone that wants the vaccine at that point is going to have access to it. And from there, it's like, look, if you're still going without the vaccine and going into crowds, given the state of the pandemic, there's only so much that we can prevent from I think a public health standpoint, like at some point there is a risk, you know, and these, and obviously both federally and state by state and took a while, but we started to actually take it seriously enough and, and we're still having these restrictions. And so for me, I, I feel like if, if there's room there and that's allowed, then yeah, I think I would be, I would be comfortable going. Um, there's still obviously risks associated, but I think we've all learned a lot about ourselves in regards to risk management over the past year and i think that you know there will be a lot of people that will there's people that have, have made different choices along the way uh i've been more conservative than most of the people in my life have been for a variety of reasons but once the vaccine is in wide distribution yeah for me it also becomes a matter of you know i do think like look if we can do this safely we need to do these things uh and maybe we don't need to go to nba games but for me it's it's a matter of i would feel comfortable doing that what about you
1: I went to the first couple of Lakers games, obviously there was ring night in LA and there were no fans. So they had really good uh, processes in place, you know, in terms of making me feel safe. Like I felt like my little workstation was wiped down. Obviously everything was remote. We're all spaced out. So I felt relatively comfortable, you know, with those first couple of games, I just didn't really see a huge value add to being there because, you know, you get amazing views on television. Um, All the media is virtual and any risk at that point of, of getting it, especially when it was really bad in December, you know, it was especially here in California, um, I just didn't feel like the, the risk-reward added up, right? It, you know, obviously, there's major consequences if you do get it and something goes wrong. I think for me, though, if, if I get vaccinated, and, you know, hopefully that will happen sometime in the near future, I would feel much more comfortable. I would look at that equation differently, especially if in California, they're not letting fans in, which I imagine it would probably be one of the last states to actually do it. And so from that standpoint, if I can just go to the arena with very minimal risk to my health, watch these games in person, especially playoff games, I think I would feel sort of a journalistic, um, you know, calling to do that, uh, especially as we get closer and closer to the games that really matter, right? So for me, it was hard to justify cross-country flights for the all-star weekend. And it's hard to justify any sort of a road trip, you know, like leaving my direct vicinity. But If it's a matter of me being vaccinated, wearing a mask, following all the health protocols and just driving, you know, 10 minutes into an arena where they have the system set up for handling media already, sitting in kind of an isolated place and and watching playoff games, I would feel much more comfortable doing that if I was vaccinated. And I would feel like um, I I would feel better ethically about it, too, frankly. You know, I I wouldn't be part of a problem in that situation. And, uh, you know, at some point we are going to have to figure out how to return to normal after we get to the you know closing stages of this pandemic. And we're not there yet, but certainly the numbers recently have been much more promising. And I hope that they continue trending in that way, even as a lot of other things open up. And that's my biggest worry is that, you know, we're going to get too aggressive. People are going to be too excited you know, as a uh, collective to get back to normal. And that could slow the, process, the progress down that we've had in, in kind of the, the numbers because they've been very, um, you know, optimistic here over the last month or so, especially. And I hope that trend continues.
0: The one that really got me was there was a, this was weeks ago, but there was a stat that on a certain day that there was more people vaccinated that day than there were new cases. That was like, that was a startling one to me. I was like, Whoa.
1: That's the inflection point, right? That's when like all of a sudden we're shooting more threes than twos and the whole game has changed.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like we've taken the lead here. Um, and it's, yeah, you know, the nuggets have allowed a a number in, in my home market here of Denver. They've allowed a number of, reporters in but my conclusion is i'm just like you what, what are the, what's the value of going to a game you know it's talking to people courtside before the game it's getting to see how players look pre-game in terms of their health and and how they're like what the general vibe is it's talking to the coach before the game to get a sense of what strategy is going to be like and you know talking with other media especially visiting media to get a sense of, of where the other team is at it's being in that locker room afterwards to be able to get a sense of you because you do pick up on vibes like of course pick up on the vibe of the room and without those things just being in an arena and like you know the i'm grateful for the seat but weighing that and then still having to do the post game stuff on zoom which i totally understand the reasons for that for me i'm just like i'm just going to be here. And I I've, I've told the nuggets, I'm like, I'm probably going to be here until I get vaccinated. Like that's just probably the reality of it. Um, but it's, it's interesting to see this, this kind of return It is what's crazy for me, though, is like by the end of the playoffs, right? Like if we, if we game this out until July, it's like, this might be at least like 70 to 80% normal. And that. Just the idea that is wild well to me, I'm, I'm just, I'm really excited for that first time that you, that somebody makes a bucket and the crowd just goes nuts and you get to hear that and it's not piped in and it's not inauthentic. Like I, I as somebody that, you know, fans are fans. I'm genuinely really excited for the first really big fan game in the NBA.
1: Oh, hundred percent. I mean, you were running down all the reasons why you would go to games in the past. And I think for me, like, especially the high level playoff games, the finals games, it's always about the tension of the crowd, right? It's a lot of people who love the sport, who are watching it played at the highest level, who have no clue what's about to happen, right? Because we can't preordain these things. And we're just all, everybody's kind of collectively on the edge of their seat. That feeling money can't buy. That feeling is one of the things that I've absolutely missed during the pandemic more than almost anything else. And, you know, being at some of the finals games during the bubble, there was real tension, you know, I mean, but it was a different kind of tension. It was a bunch of people being like, "God, ah, Jimmy Butler really doesn't want us to go home and leave this bubble. He's just going to stretch this thing out as long as he possibly can, isn't it? I mean, that was, it was kind of a different type of tension there. People, You know, the, the experience was weighing on people in different ways, but it, it just was not the same when the crowd was a few hundred people, you know, of, of loved ones compared to 20,000 people screaming. And, you know, we're probably not going to get that for this year's finals but you you fast forward to next year's finals that's going to be absolutely possible i mean you're seeing some of the other sports be more aggressive and trying to fill up their buildings i don't really anticipate that for the nba here down the stretch i feel like you know the the kind of proportions that you're describing it's going to be very gradual you know in, in terms of ret- of a return to normalcy but it's going to feel great you know when everybody's back in watching a finals game twenty thousand people basketball at the highest level I mean, it's thoughts like that that just kind of keep me going as we're sitting through here, uh, you know, in whatever this is, month 12 of uh, this intermission in all of our lives.
0: Let's take a break. When we come back, there's a new article out from ESPN, Kevin Arnovitz, and I want to talk about the game and where it's at in terms of the three-pointer and how stylistically different the NBA needs to be. We'll talk about that after the break on Locked On NBA. Today's show is brought to you by Bet Online, the fastest and easiest way to bet on all your sports action. Football might be over, but NBA, college basketball, March Madness, and the NHL are all in full swing. BetOnline even covers awards, TV shows, and reality TV. Real-time updated odds and props on almost anything that you can imagine. BetOnline has you covered for all the news, scores, and odds. It's the best way to place your bets, and it's free to sign up. Head to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit with a promo code, locked on Bet Online, your online sportsbook expert. Today's episode of Locked On NBA is brought to you by RockAuto.com. RockAuto.com brings you the best prices for all different makes and models, and they're always consistent with their pricing. So if you go to a big box storefront, you are going to get a different price than a professional does. do it yourself or just don't get the same price. But rockauto.com, the price is the same for everybody. They always offer the lowest prices possible rather than changing prices based on what the market will bear, like the airlines do. rockauto.com is for everybody, and it doesn't require membership or account login. rockauto.com is a family business. They've been serving auto parts customers online for 20 years. Go to rockauto.com to shop for auto and body parts from hundreds of manufacturers. And if you go right now, use Locked On in their how-did-you-hear-about-us box so that they know that we sent you. Amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts your car will ever need at rockauto.com. Kate Cunningham, Evan Mobley, Jalen Suggs, how much do you really know about these potential NBA stars of tomorrow? If you want to know more, you need to subscribe to the Locked On NBA Draft Podcast. Prospect scouting reports, draft rumors, mock drafts, and full coverage of March Madness four days a week from credential draft experts. Subscribe today and follow Locked On NBA Draft. Back here on Locked On NBA, thanks for making this part of your day. Matt Moore, joined by Ben Golliver. And Ben, Kevin Arnovitz, who you and I have known for um, a long time, to say the least, had a great article on ESPN this week. He talked to some executives and got their sense on it. And the big headline is pretty simple. NBA insiders say that all these threes are reaching a critical mass. It talks about the level of basically how homogenous the NBA has become, how difficult it is to defend at this level. I thought it was an interesting point that it made about, no. we'll get into that in a second, but I think it's interesting. The, the core question here, are there too many threes in the NBA game right now? Is it just too many threes? Is that the issue? Is there an issue with the, how the game is played right now? Is threes the issue? And if so, what's to be done about it? Uh, I don't mean to, to be this reductive, but I'm gonna. Uh, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, look, there's been
1: an awful lot of threes. It feels like it. It gets worse and worse every year from that standpoint. And I would say, in my personal opinion, it is too many. Um, now, am I going to want to re legislate the entire sport? You know, kick the line back six feet, or you know, change you know player movement stuff where you're you're able to kind of like hold and grab more, or you know, do a bunch of other stuff to help defenses in terms of the balance? Probably not. You know, my own personal preference, though, would probably be a little bit less. You know, the tough thing for me is when you're watching a game, if a team is just off and they're so reliant upon the three and they're just not there, you get into the blowout territory so quickly and you have to change the channel. And that's not so big of a deal during the regular season. But when you get into the playoffs, if, you know, that kind of a thing is happening, then it's just like, all right, well, it's a 25-point game and it's just over and that wasn't very much fun. Whereas I do feel like, you know, you had more close games tension before the explosion of the three pointer, at least from my own anecdotal experience. Right. So um, I think, you know, if if there was less three pointers, I'd probably be slightly happier. I don't think it's like ruined the game or anything along those lines. But I do like the idea that smart people are trying to come up with ways to sort of rebalance it or maybe, uh, you know, get it back going the other direction, because I think at this point it's kind of hurtling out of control. Right. I do see any reason for it to go back the other direction or are we just heading more and more towards the, you know, eventually there's going to be more threes than twos taken and everything else.
0: So I had a great conversation about this on Slack today with uh, two very smart dudes, Seth Partnow and, and Jared Dubin. And we were talking about it. And, you know, I mentioned, I was like, well, look, it feels like there's all these threes. And specifically I was like, I don't mind like good ball, like penetration or post-ups that force a double team or help, and then a rotation, and then open spot up three. Like those feel like very healthy, cool possessions to me. The but I was like, there's just like a so many pull up threes. Like it just feels like everybody's just you know pulling up for all these threes. And you know Jared Dubin pulled the numbers and was like, there's actually just not that much of an increase. There's just not that much of of when it's higher than it was for sure because all threes are higher, but it's not that many. And then I was watching tonight. And I was watching the Wizards Grizzlies game, and Westbrook draws a defender because nobody can keep can contain Westbrook. He draws the help, uh, but they manage to make the rotations and they kick it out. And then the end of the possession, there's still like eight seconds left on the shot clock, and Bertans catches it on the wing from about say like twenty five feet, and it's contested. There's a defender there, and he still hoists it, and he still makes it. And I was like, that that right there is. Is like the problem because the defense had done everything right, and it wasn't like he had to work to create this really difficult shot. It's just like, nope, he just rose up and fired and it went in. And that to me, I think, is part of the issue. Is that so many times, like in the where the conversation I came to with Jared and Seth, a lot of it was they asked, like, so you're saying there's the shooters are just too good? And I was like, Yeah, I kind of think so. Like, I think that's one of the key problems, is even if you're defending you're just still not able to defend well enough. I think that part of the issue is on containment. Like I've thought this for years that you can't stop Westbrook from getting to the rim. You can't really stop Lillard from breaking down unless you put two on ball and really blitz him. Um, John Wall, same deal. John Morant, same deal. You can't, nobody can contain on the perimeter. Like that's one where I do think possibly we might want to return some of the rules or at least start looking back at hand checking. No one can contain. And so if you can't contain and these guys can all reverse the court so well, then yeah, you're just going to wind up generating a ton of threes because the defense has to collapse to prevent a layup. And in doing so, you know, those guys could all make the pass to the weak side. So I think you have two problems here, which is the shooters have gotten so good that they can just hit over whatever contest that you give. And then the other problem is that you can't contain. And, and that's why the feeling is, which isn't necessarily what the numbers say, but the feeling is that nobody in the NBA can defend anymore. And I don't think that's true. I think there's some, some really great defensive teams, but I do think that they can be neutralized by how good the offense is. One thing that we've always seen is that the NBA kind of like eventually teams adapt and, and maybe Nick nurse opened the door to this with how much he and Eric Spolster have used zone but it's hard to imagine zone being pure independently like that. That doesn't feel like it's going to be enough in order to rebalance things. Like I don't have any sort of idea and everyone I've talked to um, about this issue. Nobody really has an idea on what you can do to rebalance it because of where the rules are. Yeah. Look,
1: I also think that, you know, the defense is being stretched and broken. You know, I think that's more of a regular season problem. It's more pronounced in the regular season. Then during the playoffs, you can understand why it would be hard to max out and cover all these guys and rotate and, you know, do all the things you have to do defensively every single night during the regular season, especially during a season that's condensed where you're playing more back to backs and you've got all these weird rules about what you can and can't do off the court. And it's just kind of a strange and, you know, very challenging season for these guys uh, in terms of, you know, what their lives are like on a day to day basis. I mean, I think if I was you know one of these guys, one of the first things I would give up, Matt, you know, during this year would be making the extra rotation on defense, right? <laughs> it's like, that's all right. You know, if we give up a few extra threes, you know, I'm willing to live with a couple guys hitting those, those corners, um, you know, because we've got enough el- uh, else going on. And I do think usually you see defenses perform better during the playoffs, and especially the deeper you go in the playoffs. And, you know, when everybody's ramped up defensively with their effort, I mean, you're still going to see a guy like Duncan Robinson get off during the finals like he did eventually. But, uh, you know, for the most part, it's, something closer to what we've been used to in the past in terms of style of play. It's not just this fun and gun stuff, especially that we see here recently during the regular season. So um, I want to see this continue to play out in the playoffs, like year after year before I'm willing to call this like a crisis that needs addressing. I I was curious. I don't know if you watched the three point competition when they had those guys taking what it was the Mountain Dew shot or whatever from like way back. It was so interesting how, like, that was the separator, right? Like, Steph could shoot that no problem. Like, he had the technique. It looked normal. He's been practicing those deep bombs forever. I mean, obviously, Lillard is hitting, like, basically a half court shot to end the All-Star game, right? So the very, very best shooters are comfortable out in that deep range. But even guys like Zach Levine or some of the other three-point competition contestants really struggled with that deep shot. Like, it was like that was the separator. So that one got me wondering, like, well, is this just a matter of, look, if the shooting has gotten better, do they need to kick the line back a little bit? And would that rebalance the game by itself, you would still have sort of modern spacing and you'd probably, everybody would be playing five out, but maybe the efficiency numbers go down enough where it's like enough incentive for people to attack the basket more and, and do a little bit more going to the basket as well. But um, I'm not sure there's an easy answer. I think this is one uh, situation where the G league could help though. Like, If the G League experimented by kicking the three-point line back like 18 inches, would you be in favor of that?
0: Probably not, and the reason is I think the biggest problem is that the defenders can't cover enough ground. This is one of the problems is, you know, if if you move it back and it gets harder for those guys to hit it, over time, I think they'll adapt to it. I think if you get – you know, one thing is like those guys don't – some guys don't take a lot of those shots. I'll also note, by the way, on Zach Levine's first attempt, it rattled in and out, and the reason I remember that is because – I had a sizable amount of money on Zach Levine to win the dunk contest. or the <laughs> three contest, And had he made that he advances past Jason Tatum and makes a second round. And I get another chance at it. Um, but I do think these guys over time, I think they would get used to it. And you're asking the defense to cover more. ground. It's interesting that you say, move it back. Because I thought about the opposite, which is make it easier for the defender to rotate in shorten it. Like let's make the game a little tighter and that increase. And, you know, and even that way, Cause that's the question, right? Is if, if it's shorter, the passes don't have to travel as far, but the defenders have to cover less ground because one of the key problems is if you're running what the NBA, it's crazy. Some of the numbers I've seen, um, I've asked a friend to give me some second spectrum numbers and they provided stuff about how many teams are using drop coverage. And it's just like 80% of the league does drop coverage 90% of the time. And that's what everyone does. And in those situations, you you have to bring the the weak corner help over to tag. You just, you gotta, you have to bring help over. And so that guy then has to recover all the way to the corner. And you just see so many times they can't make that rotation. They can make it in the playoffs because you're right. The energy level is higher, but that to me is kind of the issue is if you, if you increase the distance, maybe the percentages go down, but the offense still functions the same because that's still the optimum result versus I think if you shorten it, you might actually get better defense. Like, that's the question is, do you want lower percentages or better defense? That's really the question that you're having to attack with this entire question.
1: For sure. I mean, you could also expand it so far that you just, like, basically eliminate the corner threes, right? Right. Um, And then now you're just completely changing the geometry of the game. I would love to see just a random G League, like, experiment where they did that. They just killed the corner three and let them play. Uh, with a deeper line and just see how teams adapt like do they does now the shooting specialist become the guy who can like set up as close to that corner as possible because that's like the closest shot or you know all of a sudden you can't play five out because there's not enough room for all the guys so teams start going back inside with like a post-up option i would just like to play out that simulation to see what it looks like and and how the strategy adapts because i think the biggest downside to all this is the homogenous style right? Like everybody playing the same, and that is the frustrating part to me. And there was kind of a sweet spot there in the mid uh, 2010s where you still had enough stylistic diversity to keep it, keep it interesting. And on a, any given night, um, you know, a lot of these games are just you know three point shootouts, especially when the defensive effort isn't high, you know, during the regular season. I think that's what's going to kind of erode uh, the fans, and ultimately, like fan sentiment should count for a lot, right? If you go to a game, you pay your money. This is, you know, obviously post pandemic and you just watch your team jack up 53s and they're not even really trying that hard on defense because it's just sort of like, are we hot or not? That's going to be how we're going to play. If the entire league does you know, continue trending in that direction over the course of an 82 game schedule, I think that is a tough sell to fans. You know, they want to see a little bit more than that. So uh, this is something the NBA should be studying and they should be using the G League to kind of work some of these things out.
0: That'll wrap it up for Locked On NBA. Thanks for joining us. Make sure to check out all the great shows across the Locked On network. If you're not following me, you can catch me on Twitter at HP Basketball. My thanks to Ben Goliver for joining me. I'm sure David will be back next week and you can follow all the shows throughout the week, Monday through Friday on Locked On NBA. Talk to you soon.